ever think about the subjectivity of language and how it can bring us together or pull us apart? Have you ever found yourself wondering about someone else's story or why someone might have done what they did? Do you wonder why you do what you do? If so, then this is the podcast for you. very first episode of the Empathy Podcast. I'm your host Jocelyn Townsend and today we're here with Brianna Green and Sam Redman, two of the three founders of the Creative Humanizing Project Society. Today they're going to tell us a little bit about what the Creative Humanizing Project is, how they got to know each other, and the values that define the Creative Humanizing Project. Um, so I'm interested, I don't know too much about like really the full background of uh, CHP because when I met Sam, I mean we were in a coffee shop and I was having a conversation on a Tinder date and Sam gave me her business card. Because <laughs> I was eavesdropping. Um, yeah, that's, it's true. It's actually a really good story. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really know how you got into this and really what uh, started this whole project. So if you want to tell us a little bit about that. Um, Sam, that would be awesome. Yeah, so for starters, so CHP, or the Creative Humanizing Project, was born on January 8th, 2020, um, but we've been working for about a year prior yeah. to that to like kind of get it going, and so all three of the girls who started it, so me and Brianna here, and then our other really good friend, Audrey, is another co-founder um, who's not here today, um, but we all met volunteering in a federal prison. Um, kind of all there for like different interests. Um, I know I went, I was like kind of interested in criminal justice um, and I'd like taken a course in school but wasn't really sure. Like I knew it was what I wanted to do but I also like wanted to see if it was like something I could handle realistically. Like I felt like reading about prison was like very different than going into a prison and so I went into a prison. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to kind of, to see if like, you know, it is what I want. And so I'm curious, I imagine that's where you all met, but how is it that you got to know each other so well? Brie? We kind of all just became really close. It's like, prisons are like placed in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and we all carpooled. And so we kind of had like these like weekly carpools. Um, and they were actually really nice, like going to mm-hmm. the prison and being able to kind of talk about what we were going to, I felt was very therapeutic, but also like, some nights were like really hard at the prison or hard to leave or like you really heard hard stories and it was really nice to get in the car after and kind of be able to like reflect or like decompress after that as well. Yeah. You're not allowed to talk about it. like when you're in the prison, you can't talk about it outside of volunteers and just like you don't just go up it to whoever and be like, yeah, I was here and this is what I learned. Like you just can't because of confidentiality. I mean, there's a lot of we hear some really vulnerable stories while we're in there. So being able to, yeah, talk to each other. Yeah, I don't know. We just kind of clicked. We all kind of realized we had the same goals too. Like we were going in and then coming back out and being like frustrated that we were going in every week and hearing these stories of like, just like repeated and continued Mm -hmm. like pain. But then we were like leaving and being like, but the public isn't any safer because of these stories, you know? Mm -hmm. And we kind of like all realized we were like frustrated, but like all wanting to do like something new and in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I 
wanted, I actually went to school to be a lawyer. Right. And decided law wasn't right for me and I wanted to be more on the advocate side and I've always wanted to have a nonprofit uh, working with either youth at risk or those that are marginalized. And then this seemed to be a really good fit because public safety is like, I really enjoy studying public safety, uh, looking at behaviors of people, mental health. Mental health has always been really important to me because a lot of people close to me are affected by it. Um, and just working, you know, with people and creating that humanizing aspect to it and also educating the public because what we see is different from what the public sees. Hmm. I believe that. Sam, there's something that you said that I'd like to pick apart and dissect with you because I've been thinking a lot about the concept of confidentiality in my spare time. Now, like most things, I see confidentiality a bit like a tool which can be used in two different ways, constructively or destructively. Um, Constructively would be, for example, using it to protect someone, while destructively would be using Uh, confidentiality in order to silence uh, those who need to speak, which really results in oppression. I'm wondering if you could speak to that in terms of the criminal justice system and how you've seen it be used. Yeah, so for starters, I think we kind of feel the same way. Like, Mm -hmm. confidentiality is really important um, for a lot of different reasons, but also making confidentiality like a tool to oppress so that people can't share their stories or their histories or, you know, like who they are, um, you know, in those ways, confidentiality isn't there to benefit them. It is to oppress them. And so we've kind of looked at that, um, and talked to the guys about it. That's like a really big part of CHP in general is like, we want to work with the guys, you know, so we don't want to share people's stories who like don't want to share their stories, but also there's a lot of guys out there who want to share their stories and don't have an avenue. And we feel like, a little bit like it's our responsibility, um, but something that we want to do is like help them share their stories in these safe ways too, because Mm. something we see a lot, um, you know, is these journalists like coming in and getting these guys who like want to share their stories and like want to tell them what's happening and they twist these words and things like that. And they also aren't a part of the process in this way. And so something we'd like to do is like make confidentiality a thing in which we can protect these men when they're telling their stories, if they choose to, Um, because there's ways to make, things confidential without silencing people it's like you have to you own your own confidentiality mm-hmm. and then we're here to yeah to make sure that that's being respected too yeah like we wouldn't we wouldn't put anybody in a position where they're uncomfortable yeah. and they wouldn't want to talk about what like their story or they don't want it to be heard and if they wanted to stay within us then that's where it stays but yeah most of the guys they want even the guys on the inside they want their stories to be heard because they feel so misunderstood yeah and when we learn about their pasts and the trauma that they faced if the public only knew and understood that then maybe they would see things a little bit different and when we did the fundraiser having the guys tell their story was so crucial and so important because that was the awareness piece but they controlled the narrative mm-hmm. we didn't write their speeches yeah they did those we saw them and they were amazing and just like filled with such emotion um, I remember at the fundraiser, Tyler, who will be on episode two, did this uh, beautiful speech with sponges that depicted the experience of uh, holding on to baggage, 
one of the things that he did is that he used water as an example for what it was like to have baggage and that if a human was like a sponge we soak up so much and it gets heavy and if you don't give yourself the opportunity to let go or to to kind of wring out that stuff and really process it that we end up holding on to so much and i really liked what he said about that because sometimes i find our positivity culture makes it seem like that work is easy but uh to really dry out a sponge does take time and effort but more so there's almost like a saintliness to being able to do that work and to be calm and to be uh, kind in the presence of um, really just so much, uh, you know, bad treatment and trauma uh, that created that baggage. Yeah. Something we actually were kind of talking about just the other day is like anger. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because yeah, there's this, well, for starters, Tyler going up and like talking about that, who, um, Man, we love Tyler. Tyler, we call him our chief badass officer. Yeah. Um, that's like his, his official title, title at yeah. CHP. Um, but like him sharing that was so important because, man, so many people in that room, no matter what situations they've been in, have just been like, you know, hit a couple times in like whatever way that may come. And yeah, there is this expectation of like returning it with kindness or, um, you know, like, no one really knows the proper way to react, but it's it's so difficult to, like, react with kindness when people are being, like, inappropriately violent. Um, and that speech was so cool to watch because it was really cool to see that, like, we're all just, like, not so alone, we're you know? Human. We're all human. And also, yeah. It was like, very relatable. I mean, mm-hmm. I think a huge point that he wanted to get across, too, was we all have baggage, but also we all can have very similar baggage. Yeah. And though it might come in different walks of life, mm-hmm. it was so similar in a lot of the words that he was reading off. A lot of them just, you know, he would they were repeats. And it would be so interesting to put all those people in a room together that had the same traumas and get them to talk about it. Yeah. And it might be different, but the level of support and kindness and wow, you went through that and I went through that. And could you imagine if we all sat and talked about our traumas openly? Mm-hmm. I think it's like re-channeling anger. Yeah. Right? Like, you sh- like, people should be angry and that's totally a fair emotion to feel. And like, when you're getting hit by whatever, like, man, but it's like about, it's not necessarily about like responding with kindness or responding with violence. I think it's like using that anger to make change or like yeah. to connect and those types of things. And like, I think that, it's a mindset. You yeah. have to shift that mindset to yeah. this happened, but how am I going to make it? How am I going to change that habit, that habit and that pattern to do better? Well, there's this really interesting, and I know we've gone a little bit off uh, kind of from the, uh, the intended to speak, but this, but this is perfect. So outlines are outlines in case a uh, conversation doesn't happen. Um, so talking about anger, I think, is completely appropriate. Um, and there's this beautiful theory of anger. It's that anger is almost like an iceberg. And underneath the iceberg, you have a whole bunch of other emotions. So you've got grief and you have sadness and you have maybe it's irritability or agitation or frustration or confusion. 
and from that emerges anger. And I agree with that to like some degree and where I disagree is in that I think sometimes anger can come up before those emotions. Um, so it's not necessarily a secondary emotion, but something that exists in order to prevent a future from occurring. And in that way, should anger be put with the right action, it can be used for advocacy. If that makes I'm sense. like, what is like a campaign title? Yeah. Anger for advocacy. So this, like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's true. I like I. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, write it down. I have a sticky. I have um, a quote that I want to share. You want to share a quote? Absolutely. Yeah, so one thing that I've been uh, kind of on the topic of anger is also grief. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I've really been learning about dealing with my own grief um, recently. But grief is not just death or loss. It is loss. But it's grief within a prison. I mean, imagine the grief mm. that they're dealing with for 10 years. Yeah. 10 plus. And, wow. and their, their loved ones, too. Yeah. like And so grief, I was actually listening to a podcast um, myself by Brene Brown and David Kessler, who wrote the sixth uh, stage of grief, mm. um, which was the meaning. Yeah. Grief. But he said this, oh, I'm trying to find this quote. He said this really awesome quote, uh, here, here we go. And I just, it really sat with me. Um, judgment demands punishment. And he talks about how we judge our own grief. We judge our anger. So for myself, I know that I judge my own grief. I feel like my emotions are not validated. Mm -hmm. So now imagine being somebody in an institution that's dealing with their grief, but also judging themselves so much that you end up punishing yourself and that punishment can come out violently. Yeah. Interesting. It can come out like you you self-sabotage. Mm. That's what you do. And I can actually speak to that from a personal experience. I did self-sabotage because I didn't know how to sit with my grief. I didn't understand it. It was so heavy and it was, I, I couldn't comprehend it. Mm -hmm. it was way too much for me to to deal with and it wasn't until I, I did I started talking about it and talking with somebody and listening to podcasts and trying to navigate my way through and now I'm I want to learn more about it but I think grief is so much more than mm -hmm. what we know and it's not talked about it's yeah I uh it's interesting if I can add to what you shared mm -hmm. um and let me think about my words. Um, so, hmm, judgment as punishment. Sometimes I think that judgment doesn't necessarily have to be punishment if there's a level of accountability and kindness to the way that judgments are made. Um, oh. So we can make good judgments um, and make, a, a, yeah, make assessments, I guess, on how we should handle something or respond to something. But when judgment seems to be coupled with a level of scorn. Um, in judgment kindness mm -hmm. for sure but also we've like set up these institutions that have so intricately tied like judgment with punishment yeah and some of those things where I feel like we can judge with kindness but um it is right now coming from like an individual level yeah but I want yeah. to find this whole thing to kind of CHP is like 
Um, I know Bree's been going through a lot this year. Um, as like honestly, everyone. I don't know what twenty twenty <laughs> has like some kind of sick joke a little bit, but everyone's been a little more shook. Um, but originally we were all excited because it's like twenty twenty. Yeah. But um, just like community, you know, like yeah. CHP. I think one of our values is understanding that things are just more complex than we see and that understanding takes time and like, you know, grief is such a good example of that, that like grief is more complex um, than we know and it's interconnected to all these other emotions and environments and people. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's about like really understanding that understanding takes time mm-hmm. um, on an individual level, but also like on a community level, you know, and like going in and helping people and lifting people and, um, you know, not judging or judging with kindness and like offering that helping hand because it's so harmful to like see people or things happening to us, like as these moments in time, instead of like connected to all of the things that are like moving around us. Absolutely. Um, I will say we've CHP, we want to change the narrative. We want to change the view of not only community and the public, but also those within the system because I think, you know, you see prison as, well, that's the end. That's it. You're done. Yeah. That's true. Your story doesn't end. No, I love oh. that. Thank you. One of the things um, that really resonated with me and kind of struck me when the two of you were explaining that, um, that when you're in prison, you're sitting with grief for 10 years or, or more, the level of... Um, I can't even imagine the level of agony having to sit with grief even for a few months at a time. Um, there's an incredible resilience um, that I can see in an individual who can sit with grief for that long and then go back into society and reach out to a um, organization like CHP to be involved with advocacy and help. And um, I just want to take a moment to honor that if it's possible. Yeah, it's like Absolutely. resilience is the right word to use for sure. Because honestly, the system is like, it's cruel. I would say to the majority, if not all, to be honest. Um, even people that benefit from it, I think that there are ways to benefit from a system that is like more kind. Yeah. But the men that get through it, um, especially through like, you know, repeated and intentional like torture and abuse, um, you know, they're resilient. And they come out here and they're still trying. And like, I I honestly don't know how they do it because I I couldn't I like can never imagine myself in that position because I don't I wouldn't be able to handle it. And the guys that do and that come out here and are like trying to be good people still, yeah, is like oh it's like such a such a spoken thing to like humanity and kindness because I can't see myself going into a system and like not coming out with so much hate but I'm like watching them do it yeah and here and just trying and it's like yeah resilience is the right word and even with their like they experience setbacks they still continue to move forward and it's really cool to see that it's really cool to see them push forward even you know when things don't go the way that they had planned they're like well this is good for now. It is what it is. It is what it is. That's like their motto. Yeah, it is what it is. Keep going. And they're just, they're just filled with so much gratitude. That they're just out. Yeah. 
And but me and Brie are here saying it's also not the way it's got to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, we can't reach these, this point without all this pain. Yeah, and the judgment. I mean, they still have a lot of fear around judgment. I mean, I'll never forget the one question that was asked to me a few days out. And he says, do I look like a criminal? Mm. And I'll never forget that because I'm, I said, no, you look like a, a regular person. Mm. You look just like a, a human. Being. Yeah. And he's like, okay, good. Because I just feel like people are staring at me like a criminal. Like they know I've been yeah. in. And could you have done every day walking down the street, just having that constant paranoia and fear? It it is a it, it is it is fear, and you just kind of have to push that down and put on a brave face and hope that nobody recognizes you or figures out who you are and googles you or whatever it might be. They have to live with that every single day, and and we want to change that. Yeah, yeah. Live knowing too that people are gonna look at them and see them in their past hmm. and like, we want to promote looking at people and seeing them now you yeah. know and like everyone's got a past but like what you do today is like yeah the actions you do today like you know the as of right now they count more for what you did yesterday absolutely and you gotta one of the, all we can do one of the questions that i always ask the guys when like i'm volunteering was what are your goals always ask what are your goals and what are your aspirations what are you doing and you would be surprised by the amount of goals they have. Like they have a whole list of, and a plan. A lot of them, they do have a plan. They want to do X, Y, and Z things that they, you know, never thought they would be able to do. But now there's this hope. There's this like bucket list items to like career items, yeah. to family goals to like, you know, it's everything. And we, yeah. My favorite one on the bucket Sky list. Diving, yeah. And the food. It's always fun to hear what they want to eat. Yeah, um, I to- can imagine. <laughs> Sour gummy worms. Sour gummy worms. Or pineapple. Yeah. We don't have pineapple. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I just want to check in about some of the questions that the podcast is going to go over. So part of the podcast, as I'm sure the two of you are very aware, is to build empathy between people. And there's a series of questions uh, that people get to choose from. And for myself, I'm curious and the two of you about... Um, your experiences of safety and what it means to feel safe. So how uh, how would you feel safety in your body? Bree, do you want to share? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting topic because it's something that I've really been exploring lately within myself. Just, I mean, we all deal with, we all deal with our own shit. <laughs> and uh, one thing that I've been dealing with is like how to feel, how do I feel safe? How do I create a safe space? And it was actually over Christmas time, uh, this past Christmas, that I felt safe for the first time. Like I actually just woke up and I felt free. And I, when my goal was to free myself. Mm. And how did and, you do that out of curiosity? Yeah. Um, I learned how to be vulnerable. I really started to learn to feel comfortable setting boundaries. Uh, boundaries, I think people just don't know how to set them because it's scary. I mean, to set a boundary is to respect yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and not a lot of people can do that out of fear. They're scared of 
scrutiny or being judged by somebody or being looked at as a bad person. And it took a long time for me to be comfortable setting a boundary when someone says to me, for example, oh, like, hey, do you want to go and do this? And if I don't, then I'm just going to straight up say no. And you can't care what the other person thinks. Mm. You can't put that pressure on yourself because when we do, we lose respect for ourselves. We're not putting ourselves in a safe situation right? because you feel so uncomfortable and you're forcing yourself to do something that's not making you feel happy. Yeah. And that can range from a lot of different things. So for me, it was really learning to set a boundary and just be okay with it. And if I find myself kind of spiraling, I pull myself back and I say, no, why? Why am I spiraling? Mm. It is okay. I am okay to say no. I. It is okay for me to put that boundary down and be happy with it. And if that other person is going to disrespect that, then do you truly want that person in your life? But what I found is the people that I've surrounded myself with and the boundaries that I'm setting, they are respected. Mm-hmm. And I, I've tried to teach that to other people by saying, you know, when you set a boundary, that person is going to respect you. And not only is that person going to respect you, but you're not teaching them to set boundaries. And I think that's when I really started to feel safe was taking back that control. Mm. And it was just such a, it's just very free. And I've had people, good friends recently say to me, they're like, man, you're really good at setting boundaries. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I, I said, said it to you. you yeah, are. you did. You did. <laughs> I had another friend say it to me. And so how do you do it? And I just said, I did the work. Yeah. I did the work to get there. So what comes up for me um, would be when you're in a place like a prison, how, you don't have the, the power, the control to set boundaries. So how do you feel safe when you are in conversations with people who uh, feed on authoritarianism? Meaning they're not authoritative in the fact that they're willing to talk with you and hear what your needs are and work with you, but instead... Um, they try to dominate you regularly and the, the, like to not like I got to be careful about what I say but there's no safe word there's no um there's no <laughs> nothing that says like like stop you can't do this I need you to stop yeah um can I touch on that one yeah <laughs> I love this question is like so important because volunteering in a prison when people find out that you do you know the first thing they want to know is like what's it like and do you feel safe and like oh yeah you know it's like the first question is about you know do you feel safe were you scared yeah were you scared like what what happened um what's it like and to be honest like first and foremost going into the prison the part that makes me feel most unsafe is not being with the guys um and to be honest like they've set up such a level of respect like they respect us so much and men coming in that aren't going to respect those boundaries are not allowed in. Um, And I've like never felt, I've never felt unsafe in there. Um, Even when I might have felt like someone in there was unsafe, I never felt that I was alone also in there. And to be honest, I feel like I tend to tell people I'm like more scared because I like to walk a lot and I walk alone a lot. Yes. For some reason, it's like no one wants to know like why 
no one asked me about that. But it's like every single day that I walk alone, it's like safety is, is fluid. You know, I think it's like really easy to come in and out of feeling safe super quickly, you know, like different things trigger people and all of a sudden you're not safe. But we've made it this thing where like we live in fear all the time. And so now when I'm out and I'm walking, you know, I'm afraid all the time that something is going to happen. And it's just in the back of my mind that's living there. Um, and I think it would be peaceful to not have that all of the time. Um, and I think that so many people everywhere just have that. They're like trained to live in this idea that like they're safe because that they live in fear. Yes. You're safe because they're like ready to go if something happens. And like that is not safety. It's so funny that you say that. Because I've, ne- yeah, like I never have once felt unsafe going into the prison. Mm-hmm. I felt safe with the guys. They are. The guards make me feel safe, to be honest. Yes. The institutional yeah, setting true. makes me feel unsafe. Yeah. But the guys, the guys no, very comfortable, very like, if anything was to happen, then we're in the safest place possible. Like, and the guys trust us. I feel safe with the guys and with my friends and those yeah. who support me. And like, I know that those guys have my back if something were to go down in there, whether it be an institutional thing or something with a guy or just just an emergency or an incident. Like, I know that, you know, if the tsunami were going to hit, the guys would make sure mm-hmm. that, like, we are transported to a safe spot with them or they would bring Absolutely. us with us to, like, what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Oh, versus, you know, yeah. like, I never felt alone in there. No. Versus if you don't, no, it's okay. I've just, um, I wanted to add if that's all right. Because I'd never met the men um, before going to the fundraiser. And it was such an interesting thing in running the empathy booth with them. I actually felt safer with these men, having never met them before, than I do walking uh, through the university or being in the university um, that I'm in. And one of the things that came up for me, just in reflecting on that, was that all of these men that I've spoken to have taken accountability for what they've done. They've been able to sit with grief. They've been able to um, to, to, to practice uh, forgiveness or at least understanding their circumstance and understanding whatever um, issue was on the other side of that circumstance. Like there's just so much work that has been done by this these men that uh, other people in society who have never been held accountable um, have never ever done. And particularly people who uh, have authoritarian positions, um, a lot of them have gotten to those positions for various reasons that don't require accountability. And I think that they know what public safety is. Yeah. You know, it's like they know when they're unsafe, Um, which, to be honest, is like almost all the time for a lot of them. but they've been like impacted by public safety. For the most part, all of them are victims of the system, but like might yeah. also have victims. You know, they can see these different sides of public safety mm-hmm. and talking about it and living in it. And not to say that, you know, maybe these more authoritarian or managerial positions don't have that. Um, but I, I don't think that they do. I think something that going in and experiencing, like me and Bree have never been incarcerated. But getting to go in and look at it, not from the inmate's point of view and not from the guard's point of view, was incredibly different. Yeah. Um, like, we're neutral. And to be honest, going into an institution, period, whether you're an inmate or a volunteer or a guard, is, like, dehumanizing. Um, and it takes away your freedom, no matter who you go in as. Um, and this, then, yeah, like, the second, safety. the second we walk through those doors, we could have seen that guard every single week. 
and the level of judgment I remember getting hostility getting looked up and down like women going in and they just the way that we're looked at the way that we're viewed did not make us feel safe Mm -hmm. it really didn't it just it was a very uncomfortable feeling but this happens in so many institutions like you said you know you've never been prison but you're not comfortable going to the school yeah and yeah Yeah. a lot of of people of all genders of all ages and you know this is happening everywhere and we want people I want to feel safe Mm -hmm. I want my mom to feel safe I want Brie to feel safe I want everyone to be able to like feel more at peace so if safety like if you had to describe I don't know if you even can because uh, from the sounds of this conversation we're all kind of on terms with the fact that safety is hard to sense or to come by um, but when you were with the men and you've described feeling safe, what sensations come up for you? Like what visceral sensations? What's visceral? Like physical. I want to say like presence. Like I feel like I was less anxious because I wasn't like worried or like looking around me. Like I was like physically able to focus more, you know, like you're allowed to have a conversation instead of like, looking around and wondering who's coming in the door. And like, I was like less jittery. I was like more relaxed physically. Mm. I would say also like connected mm-hmm. and I used to look raw, vulnerable, actually vulnerable. Mm. When you're in a safe space. So easy to be open. Not only are they open with us, we can be open with them. And it's just, I don't know. It's like a really cool experience. Well, when we feel safe and we can open up in those positions, it lets them, yeah. you know, and vice versa. You know, like when they sit there and I'm not afraid of them, it like lets me relax, you mm. know, versus sitting here and like wondering who this person is and this is awkward and I'm like, don't know if I should move or. Yeah. And then like, it's so weird because sometimes I would always feel like, oh man, I can't have any problems. I can't. I have to help these guys like they, you know, and whatnot. But that's not the case. Yeah. If I wasn't human, mm-hmm. they wouldn't trust me. Right. How can you open up to somebody that, you know, isn't willing to be vulnerable? How can yeah. you open up and feel safe with somebody that isn't willing to do the same? Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we can do that with them, it's just we have built these connections and a friendship. And, and to be honest, the fact that humans can do that in an institution like that I think really speaks to humanity. Yeah. And I think it's like, the fact that anyone can be open to be honest in a prison is like, blows my mind. Yeah. And it's like something that surprised me too, you know? Like I didn't think that I would naturally go in there and feel comfortable or feel more comfortable with the guys. Yeah. yeah. But that in too, like blocks a lot of that opportunity for that to happen. Yeah. There was more of that. I think we would see a way better system. It's good shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's quite cathartic listening to you talk about safety, the both of you. Um, Because, like, I I see this interesting um, image in my own mind when you talk about it of almost like two people being ice cubes in a dish, if that makes sense. And suddenly it's like when you start feeling safe, you go from being frigid to everything melting, the tension releasing, and you're able to connect in with this other, this other ice cube and be in this still pool. 
where there's the capacity to maybe change or freeze or boil, but you're in it together and you're no longer sort of divided um, by frigidity. That's like such a good metaphor. And yeah. such a good thing too. Yeah, like I think something to remember and something about the prison is sometimes we would go in and like bad moods, bad days for us, for yeah. the guys. Like sometimes you go in there and you can't be open. Sometimes you go in there and it's hard to be open. Sometimes stuff happens and like you're not ready to be open too. And it's like... Yeah. Or you're tired. Yeah. And it's knowing that, like, people, you know, are fluid in these ways. Yeah. Um, and you can't be I, – I feel like where we go wrong is we're, we're fault we're put it, we're faulted for these things. Mm-hmm. And although, yeah, okay, sure, you commit a crime, you, you do your time. Things happen. But when we get into forgiveness, you know, people can change. People can adapt. And it's – learning to be vulnerable it's learning to feel safe because in an act of crime yeah. you're never you weren't coming from a safe place yeah. you were under pressure and under situations like so much more complex yeah that, than you see and if you were vulnerable <laughs> then you're seen as weak yeah. versus now when it's all flipped yeah so, what um comes up for me and what you stated there was forgiveness and moving on with the uh, conversation I'm curious about what forgiveness feels like or what it would even feel like to forgive someone who's harmed you and how that plays into public safety um yeah I think first and foremost you have to forgive yourself before you can forgive someone Mm. Um, and that's like I think everyone has work to do and not, yeah. and not in a mean way or, like, a telling way, but in a way that, like, I'll always have work to do because yeah, because that's just the way it is. Like, you know, and it's it's never done. Um, and it's something you kind of have to embrace. Every you know? day. Every single day you have to. And, yeah, I think if you can forgive yourself, then forgiving someone else becomes a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had to forgive people that I never thought I would be able to forgive yeah but I also don't have the capacity to hold on to that um like that grudge I just don't have the capacity that I have to look at the situation and say okay well maybe I was at fault here in that situation forgive myself and I can let go I can let go of I might not be able to you know have a friendship with that person or whatever you know that situation is and I think that that is okay and it's just being okay with it yeah this is um forgiveness is really difficult I find and I find it is a little bit of the system's fault because there's there's so much forgiveness to happen and um I think victims of crime especially violent crime here are such an important category to give like extra care and compassion and thought to because a lot of them have to find forgiveness in really really difficult ways because the system doesn't support avenues or help um to like move through that and discover what that means um and forgiveness is really hard and I think something that like me personally you know it's one of those things where like Brie was saying sometimes you just need to forgive so that you can live mm-hmm. you know and that's a really really difficult thing to do sometimes um but also something we want to support is like, you know, like when you do that and you forgive so that you can live, like your life is 
better. Your life is safer. You know, like you are like creating this space for you personally and internally to like move on um, in a way. And like, we want to do that. We want to help people do that. Um, but it is really difficult. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're probably. Yeah, no, it's okay. I just want to ask a follow-up question with that. Um, So going back to prisons and institutions in general, how do you forgive when the same type of abuse is constantly being put on you and you can't get away? Because this is a concern that I have um, and a curiosity, particularly about the men in in prisons, because I imagine there's a lot of authoritarian abuse that occurs, and yet they are constantly kind of asked or told to be graceful, or what I would would interpret as graceful, to that sort of uh, dynamic. And that's, I guess, what I'm wondering is, how do you forgive them in such a circumstance? Oh, I don't think we do. Like, the perpetuators, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that forgiveness is, it's like a, it's a different thing in that way. It's like, we cannot forgive those, the abuse of the system because there's no room for forgiveness. And I think that forgiveness in that way comes from like a personal thing of like forgiving yourself and like, and all that pain that you've endured so that you can continue to live. I think like that's forgiveness is like when these guys come out of the system and don't forgive the system for the abuses they've done, but they like, Mm-hmm. forgive themselves in that time in their life that they can live because that's like I think that is forgiveness for a lot of them and also knowing that they have to do that and they have to forgive because otherwise they're going to go back into that system mm-hmm. it's like if they can't get out of that and forgive and like find a way to live in these ways despite what has happened because what has happened isn't okay mm-hmm. um, and what they've done too isn't okay a lot of the time you know like mm-hmm. But, like, forgiving those parts that you can go on and live, I think, is kind of the best way to tell the system that what they're doing isn't forgiven and that we won't continue to let them abuse people into that. Yeah, what comes up for me is uh, the notion that a lot of these men often get used as a scapegoat because they've done something wrong that has been, um, or not even all of them have done something wrong, um, they have been caught doing something that has been deemed as criminal or they've been accused of doing something that has been deemed as criminal. Um, So if you're not familiar with the notion of a scapegoat, essentially, like the scapegoat is all the aggression or the anger gets put onto particular individuals or an individual um, because of something they got caught in. And when I think about the fact that everyone who's been to prison has a story. Um, often what comes up for me is that these men have become the scapegoats for bigger issues, where it seems that there's bigger issues and things going on that need to be addressed and they're not being addressed. Uh, and poverty, yeah. like, man, if we fixed <laughs> poverty, not only would we just be able to actually focus on the crime that needs intense focusing and rehabilitation services on. Mm -hmm. Um, But you would like contribute to the economy. You would build Canada entirely. You would give Mm -hmm. people and families and children chances and jobs and money and community and like pleasure. You know, you would give them a quality of life that would make Canada as a whole and the people that don't even see or know about this 
yeah. better off. Yeah, so with that statement, um, bringing that back to CHP, it seems like, you know, and part of the advocacy work, part of it is advocating for um, a justice system that is uh, forgiving and acknowledges issues and holes that uh, cause crime to begin with. And rather than focusing on punishment, focuses on addressing those holes and instilling forgiveness. Is that, uh, would that be a good uh, paraphrasing? 100%, yeah, that's, that's definitely it. And also to close those holes, one of our big goals, and it's going to be a big task, and we started the work on it, is getting organizations to work together. Mm, yeah. The biggest, that is just such a problem, especially, you know, it's everywhere. Um, I could say it's here in Victoria, it is, but it's everywhere. Um, you know, policing, mm. work together. They need to release proper information that would be really helpful. Um, they need to work with the community so we're not afraid of them. Yes. Yeah. And so, like, I watch their marketing. Yeah, I have air quotes because podcasts, so air quotes for police <laughs> marketing. And everything they post is literally seized X amount of cocaine or whatever. And it's like, okay, upset about not getting budget to militarize, right? And yeah. so, um, you know, freedom of speech, we could talk about this because for me, I see that and I'm like, but what's that helping? Sure. You're, you're giving people the information and to them, that's public safety. Well, what comes up for me as well, if I may contribute is, um, my own experience with uh, dealing with the police in terms of uh, mental health is that um, if you're having a mental health crisis, the police come in with guns, and, and they, uh, if you do, if you state that yes, you've been thinking about harming yourself, um, they lock you in a mental hospital or an institution. Like violently attack you to detain you, even if you're not reacting, because yeah. that is their training, and they're the only people in Victoria at least, who can deal with community mental health problems on the street. But then we looked into it and like we cannot find what training they have that makes them qualified to do this. Uh, just the, the, like if you are having a mental health crisis, you need trauma-informed practices and there should be people like respondents who are trauma-informed to come and sit with you. Like usually when someone's having a breakdown, it's either like there's a need that's not being met and there is constant abuse that, that, that has been occurring that's causing a breakdown or has made someone homeless. Like, I think the last statistic that I, I heard was that 40% of people on the streets are struggling with a mental disability. And uh, that's from, I guess, identified mental disabilities. My background in psychology has shown me that if you have, like, you know, 50% of the symptoms from one mental health issue and 50% from another mental health issue, um, you don't meet the criteria of either to get a diagnosis or to get help for either mental health issue. So there, there's some serious uh, issues on that side of things. Um, but when you think about that statistically, the fact that these people are, or excuse my language, I shouldn't say these people, the fact that people are being spoken to in a way that doesn't respect the struggle that they're having um that seems rather problematic to me well it's frustrating right like yeah. imagine being on the street being like i have mental health problems i need help and the police are 
like trying to book you on the ground. Like yeah. just. Uh... Yeah. So thank you for addressing that because one of the big issues that um, I definitely recognize is the need for um, safety to include awareness of uh, mental health and how mental health can be impacted by by violence. Um, and that violence doesn't help that at all. Um, so moving on, I'm just curious if either of you can share or talk about um, maybe something that you learned or appreciated uh, in uh, the other person stating throughout this whole conversation. Shoddy. <laughs> um, we kind of started the conversation off about how we all met, which was going to a prison. Um, and something that in general, like really surprised me or kind of made, made me more aware in the prison, but also just in general now is that it's like not as difficult to connect with people as we think. Mm. Um, and I feel like I like constantly appreciate that about free. Um, but yeah, I think that's like my appreciation for you today is that like even it's okay. easier to connect with people then you think that you don't know. Um, but like that community aspect of like continuing to connect with people that you do know is like really important every day, but like a pleasure every day. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you, Doug. Uh, <laughs> that's so kind. I have nothing to say. I'm kidding now. Yeah. <laughs> and we're done. We're done. We're closing now. Uh, I would say, well, one, just kind of echo that we have this level of just respect and it's a safe space. Like I feel safe with, with, with Sam and it's always a safe space to talk. And I definitely appreciate that, but also we're very fluid, you know, we can just keep going with the conversation and it just keeps going. And we just kind of bounce here later. We haven't stopped talking. Yeah. uh, Bounce off of each other and kind of finish not finish the sentence, but keep that sentence going, uh, because we we do obviously we're very passionate about these these topics, and I think we have similar values. Yeah, values. you know, it's like it's easy to be flexible when you're not strict about the way things are being done, but like the outcome that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it change it changes those procedures we were talking about. You know, it's like those procedures are going to change per person because the outcome is that like you are safe and that means something different to everyone and those values will guide that process versus like step one fill out this intake form step two Mm -hmm. call us in four to six weeks step three you know I agree with that um so what are those values that the two of you connect on I imagine they'll have different words with how you both describe them but that there would be a similar underlying notion Respect. Yeah. Respect as an ethic. Like, respect for others around us and for ourselves, right? Yeah. So, like, not overworking ourselves, too. Yeah, and describe respect, uh, because some people think of respect differently than I think you mean it. I'm going to, like, define on Google right here, and then see if I, like, actually really appreciate that definition. The feeling of deep admiration for someone or something elicited by their abilities, qualities, or achievements, due regard for people. Yeah, this isn't like what I want. I think respect is like acknowledging that people are human and shit happens. And like, we have duties like to ourselves and people around us, you know, like if shit happens. Yeah. Breeze, me, like, let me know that she can't make it today. But she's not just gonna like ghost me. 
No, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I like what you stated because in hearing the definition, I can hear what you're saying in the definition, but I don't think a lot of people interpret it that way, is like to hold something in high regards doesn't mean pedestaling it, doesn't mean like imagining that the person is flawless or that everything that is that a process is doing is great, but that uh, there's an acknowledgement that a person is doing the best that they can do for the circumstance that they're in in the moment and in order to, for them to continue to respect themselves or to be functional means that they have to acknowledge and hold in high esteem their own experience as well. When we do that, we work better together. Yes, exactly. There's no pressure. Um, I would also say badass. Mm -hmm. Badass value because it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, we it's, value. It literally is just... It is definitely our value. It is who it's who we are. We're not afraid to speak our mind. We're <coughs> sorry, fierce women um, who are, we're just going for it. And you know, I get I've, I've been asked this question a few times: Is are you afraid of the backlash? And my automatic response is no. I hope it happens. I'm like mm. afraid of a continuing system of abuse. Yeah, <laughs> I'm laughing because I, I relate. <laughs> I wrote down some other ones, too, that we just talked about. But, like, empathy, yeah, bit like empathy. building empathy, practicing empathy, that's value for us, role modeling, right? Not just, like, preaching it, but doing it. Yeah. Fun fact, we're empaths. <laughs> You're an empath. The only people that we've actually really surrounded um, ourselves with that we've brought into the organization. Our last value we wrote down was humanizing. Yeah, humanizing. humanizing. I love yeah. that. Thank you. And humanizing. Those yeah. are, like, good good values that we want all of our solutions to aim for by the end, yeah? Yeah. I love it. Um, so I need to respect our time on the podcast. I could talk with the two of you for a long time, though, so um, coffee at some point. Um, yes. And I just, I'd love uh, for the two of you to say goodbye to our listeners and to thank them for uh, joining us today. Right. Well, we thank everybody for tuning in to the podcast and, of course, to Jocelyn for being so awesome and amazing at putting this all together. We hope that you listen to our podcast that is coming out, well, now. Um, we're excited to see what you what you create and to see our followers. And if you are looking to get involved, you can contact us. We do have our website up, which is creativehumanizingproject.com. We are on all social media, so Facebook and Instagram. If you do want to get involved, please reach out. If you have questions or anything, don't hesitate to, uh, to talk to us. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye so thanks for listening. That was the first episode of the Empathy Podcast. Opening music was brought to you by Grant Parkins. And next week, we're going to be joined by Tyler and Aaron, two very different people with different takes on, on safety and what's needed to feel safe. If you think you'd like to have a conversation with someone you never really expect to, uh, send us an email at thecreativehumanizingproject at gmail.com and we'll hook you up. Take care. Bye.